If you would, my name is John Fox, and I'm one of the pastors here. And I would like to begin this morning, as we continue on in our summer series, Summer in the Psalms, uh, by actually just reading the whole psalm. Reading the whole, whole psalm and then uh, start to get into it. But this time in particular, I, I feel like it's important just to kind of get the psalm on the whole uh, before we really start trying to digest it. And it's not too difficult because it's only 17 verses. So uh, it is quite, quite refreshing as we've been talking about being in Acts for such a long time, covering, you know, 25, 35, 45 verses sometimes. Uh, so much content to slow down here. And we get to do that again this morning. So go ahead and open to uh, Psalm 90. It's next to the, uh, the center of your Bible. As Chris pointed out last week, it's not the exact center, but it is next to it. And I'll go ahead and read that for us. Psalm 90. Lord, you have been our dwelling place in all generations. Before the mountains were brought forth, or ever you had formed the earth and the world, from everlasting to everlasting, you are God. You return man to dust and say, Return, O children of man. For a thousand years in your sight are but as yesterday when it is past, or as a watch in the night. You sweep them away as with a flood. They are like a dream, like grass that is renewed in the morning, in the Morning it flourishes and is renewed, in the evening it fades and withers. For we are brought to an end by your anger. By your wrath we are dismayed. You have set our iniquities before you, our secret sins in the light of your presence. For all our days pass away under your wrath. We bring our years to an end like a sigh. The years of our life are 70, or even by reason of strength, 80. Yet their span is but toil and trouble. They are soon gone and we fly away. Who considers the power of your anger and your wrath according to the fear of you? So teach us to number our days that we may get a heart of wisdom. Return, O Lord, how long? Have pity on your servants. Satisfy us in the morning with your steadfast love that we may rejoice and be glad all our days. Make us glad for as many days as you have afflicted us and for as many years as we have seen evil. Let your work be shown to your servants and your glorious power to their children. Let the favor of the Lord our God be upon us and establish the work of our hands upon us. Yes, establish the work of our hands. As I was reading this psalm and studying, preparing for it, I, uh, I have to confess to you that I actually got kind of geeked out on it. It may not seem like a psalm to geek out on, um, especially because there are so many heavy elements to it. But as I started to read, I saw some, uh, some theological framework involved, some, some uh, of a theological grid. And as a good trained theologian, I opened it and I, I saw that this is, this is a fantastic opportunity to really dive in and look at God's eternality. You know, um, these aspects of God that uh, we don't necessarily share or recognize that easily. And uh, in terms of systematic theology, they're called the incommunicable attributes of God, which is a great way to start a sermon. And 
you know, those are the things that we see here, that God's eternal or in other places that, that he is independent or in other places still that he is holy. And those are the incommunicable attributes of God. There's many more, but those are the things that we don't share with God. And, and there are things that we do share with God that we see here. Those are called the communicable attributes, those things that we share with God, that he communicates to us and we, we understand to some degree. And we see it, the anger involved in God. We understand anger, we have anger, or the compassion that Moses calls for from God, that we have compassion as well. So we, we can kind of understand and recognize with that. And as I was really looking into it, the more I studied, the more I searched, the more I became convicted that I'm totally missing the point. Totally missing the point. Uh, and as I started out the series by talking about how Psalms, the Psalms are different because they're poetry, the, the point is the same. When we read any Psalm, and this Psalm in particular in some ways, what we need to come to the table with is an understanding not of prose, but of poetry. We need to come to the table understanding not data, not information, but relationship personal relationship. This is the kind of language that, that is used here as the psalm begins. It's very personal. Lord, you have been our dwelling place. It's very personal. And as I was thinking about that, I couldn't help but have called to my mind uh, a, uh, a very, very iconic time in my life when I was learning to drive a car. And it's a rite of passage. Everybody has to do it. But not everybody has to, has to learn how to drive a stick shift. But if you have passed that threshold, then you understand you will never forget that experience uh, for a number of reasons. It could be just the, just the kind of confusion of it all. How do I move my hands and my feet and, and turn and watch out for everybody? It could be the confusion or it could just be the stress that as you're learning to drive a, a standard, then you realize that you just you're not acquainted with how all this machinery works and there's so many things that have to come together at just the right timing that it really is a difficult thing to acquire. But uh, like everything in my family growing up, competency was a high value. And so it wasn't just learning how to drive a stick shift, it was learning how to master driving a stick shift. And, uh, and of course, we didn't have newer cars, we had older cars. And by older, I mean 60s. Okay, so driving, driving, learning to drive a stick shift in a car that old is a workout. It's really different than cars these days, and, and uh, it's nothing natural by any means, and it always involved lots and lots of failures, lots of lurching, lots of hitting the brakes, uh, not too many episodes of hitting other things, even though that happened, but as that happened, it, it just was recalled to mind for me because it was a... a a scenario, a time of life where it's just not, not natural, not smooth. But if you keep at it, you can master it. And just to give you an idea, maybe a little insight into my own family upbringing, the way, the way that I was trained to master driving stick, which I, I feel very confident these days, uh, is by my dad not only sitting in the seat next to me giving me instruction, but by taking an invisible coffee cup and placing it on the dashboard and saying that if you spill the cup, you fail. That's a challenge in a normal vehicle, okay? If you didn't know that, that's a real challenge in a normal vehicle, but in a standard, it's virtually impossible. 
and extremely subjective, if I can say that now. <laughs> How do you know if you spill the, the coffee? Um, well, my dad would always let me know. <laughs> but as that was happening, I learned through painstaking efforts to drive, to master driving a stick shift. And that's the same sort of thing that we need to have in mind when it comes to the Psalms, that this is not natural. When you jump into the Psalms, it's not natural. You really have to have some retraining involved, and we get to see that and experience that some today. But we're so accustomed to this language of information, and it's so impersonal, really. So impersonal. But the kind of language used here is very intentional, very, very personal, and and that's really what we have to have in mind and know as we get into it. There's something else that we need to know as we begin, that this psalm in particular, if you have your psalms booklet and you've uh, been looking over it, you will look over it, that this is a, a certain kind of psalm. It's a community lament psalm. That means that it's, it's a psalm that is brought forward into the nation of Israel to say, it's not just me that I have to say I'm sorry for. It's my whole nation. It's my whole community. And this is something that's really strange to us. It's really foreign to our ears because we're so independent. Our culture is so individualistic that to, to, to have a group of people come forward and say, you know what, we've done wrong, is really strange to us. But this is how the psalm is made. And it's the psalm of Moses. It's the psalm of Moses. Um, and it's probably the oldest psalm in the Psalter because Moses wrote it. And obviously, it's not chronological necessarily because here we are in the fourth book of the Psalms and, and Moses begins it. So some one or some ones in Israel's history took all these songs and compiled them and uh, put this one here intentionally to give us a little bit of background for it because Israel at this stage of their life is coming out of exile. They are still in exile through God's just punishment for their sin, deported to Babylon. But here they are in Babylon, and they're lamenting the fact that they've sinned against God. And so how does book four start, which is really consideration in exile for the nation? How does it start? Lord, you have been our dwelling place in all generations. You see, book three in the Psalms is really put forward to us as a tone of despair to say, how will God ever rescue? Who will ever help me? And book four opens, opens up very personally saying, God's always been our refuge. He's always been there for us. And as the psalm begins this way, and as Moses responds this way, that's really leading to the main point for us. The main point is that God is the everlasting everlasting refuge that we all need. That's what we see today. God is the everlasting refuge we all need. And as I looked into this, and I'm sure as you look into it, you'll begin to identify times of your life, areas of your life, whether they've happened or they are happening, that you need help. You just need a refuge. When the most difficult times of your life come, where do you turn? Do you turn to a friend? Do you turn to your achievements? Do you turn to money? Maybe I just spend money to fix this thing. That's not how Moses dealt with issues in his life. 
the most difficult times of Moses' life, he came and said, there's only one place I have to go. There's only one refuge. ESV translated as, as dwelling place. There's only one place that I can go to to get out of this storm. And we all have them. We all have storms in life. And so we need to learn from Moses this morning about how he did it. This psalm shows us how he thought about these storms of life and how to get out of them. How to find a refuge in God. So we'll just begin with point one that we see in verses one to six. That the first thing that Moses did and the thing that we need to do is to ponder God's eternality. That's the first thing Moses does. He begins by saying that before the mountains were made, God was there. Before anything was created, God was there, uncreated. He's everlasting to everlasting. And this really sounds like Genesis 1-1, doesn't it? As the Bible opens up, in the beginning, God. In the beginning, God, that he's there. He's preexistent in all things of creation. And then he creates. It's a statement about God's timelessness. That God is, as we see here, outside of time. This is one of those huge differences between God and us. God is not affected by time. He's not in time. One of the best ways that we could possibly start to understand it is to say that God is always in the present. Of course, you get get a little questionable when you start trying to understand that because we're in time, but that's the way that we should think about it, that, that God, God is outside of time, that he's not affected by time, that he doesn't grow old. One of the ways that we could think about this, maybe memorize it, is to say that God's metabolism does not slow down. It's happening. It's happening with me. I lament the fact. It's happening with all of us. Our bodies change. Why? Because we are in time and space. You learn. Why do you learn things? You learn because you are in time. God does not learn. God is outside of time. God is eternal. Has always been, will always be. This is something that Moses leads the nation of Israel into doing. He says, first, let's think about God. And not just think about God abstractly, but how does he begin? He says, Lord, you have been. It's a personal address, isn't it? That Moses begins in his, in his difficulty, in his lamentation, by saying, God, you're eternal. And it's not just this theoretical exercise, but he actually begins talking with God about who he is. He says, God, you're eternal. Lord, you've been our dwelling place in all generations, everlasting to everlasting. You're God. And we really can't think about this too long without then turning, just like Moses does here. He spends two verses thinking about God's eternality. And then, a verse later, in verse 3, he turns his focus to himself, to man. He says, you return man to dust. When we start to consider who God is and his power and his nature, it really is just a short step to then turn to us and contrast of who God is. And who are we in contrast to this eternal God? Well, Moses says that we're children of man or Adam and 
God returns us to dust. And there's certainly a play on word, uh, use of words going on here because Adam just means ground and dust is dust. So he says, you know what? Eventually, all things, the way that they go, you return man just to the way that he came, dust. And so there's a huge difference between God and us here. And it's not only that. It's not only that. You see, to extend the contrast, it's not just a man's life. In a hypothetical situation, if a man were to live a thousand years, which is actually somewhat reflective of Genesis as well, because Methuselah almost did, how does that count in God's scales? Well, the way that he talks about it is, is to say that, that even the thousand years, even a thousand years in your sight are but as yesterday. It doesn't even count for a full day. And you know this, when you think back to yesterday, it's just gone. And this is the way it is for God. Even if someone could live for a thousand years, then it's just a blip of a thought in God's mind. This is the kind of situation that we're in, and we're in it because of the way that things began. With a reference to dust, that's clearly a tie back to Genesis 3 in the fall, where Adam and Eve said, you know what, God, we know what you want, but we're going to disbelieve you because we think we know better. And as that happens, the curse that's laid on man is to return to dust. I really uh, like comics. I grew up reading comics. And my, 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 one of my favorite moments in all the comic book history is the snap. And uh, if you've seen Avengers Endgame recently, I'm not giving anything away because you should know them by now. Um, but in the first movie is that's what happens. Thanos, the, the evil villain, right? He snaps his fingers and eliminates half of all life in the universe. And when that happens, well, you see, they did a great job depicting it, but everyone just kind of ethereally floats away into dust. That's the same kind of thing that Moses is talking about, that eventually that's how things go. You just turn into this dust. And we know that. We know that when we look back on our own lives even, that this life is so fast. You know, when you're uh, a kid, things move so slow, don't they? I mean, I remember just playing around with my brothers and sister and, and waiting, waiting, waiting until I could go do something. It seems like I was bored all the time as a kid. Uh, but when you get older, things change, don't they? Some boredom in my life would be very appreciated right now. We want that. And, and just looking back over our shoulder, we see that kind of effect that time has on us. That things that took so long all of a sudden are so fast now. And the older that we get, the more we recognize this situation with time. That it, just, it is slipping through our fingers. The tighter that we hold on to it, the faster it falls out. There was a, uh, a man named Piercy Shelley who wrote a, a poem 201 years ago. So this is some considerable time ago. And he wrote it about a man that was alive 3,000 years ago. His name is Ozymandias. Uh, you might know him by the name Ramses II, Pharaoh. And in uh, Piercy Shelley's time, 
there was a lot of excavating done in the, uh, in the east, and, and what they uncovered was a, a huge statue, or what remained of a huge statue, and it was really just a part of a leg in an inscription. And the inscription was uh, of this man, this, uh, this pharaoh, this great king, Ozymandias. And here's what the inscription read. My name is Ozymandias, king of kings. Look on my works, ye mighty and despair. Has a very ominous feel to it, doesn't it? But there's a huge irony here. And the irony is that, that for Piercy, Shelley, the, the poet who was writing on this, um, or, or us, we look back on Ozymandias, and you know what we see? We don't, we don't despair because of his great power. We despair because his power is gone. Just a, a few thousand years, a few moments in God's mind, and the most powerful man of the world is nearly forgotten. It's an incredible thing to stop and ponder on God's eternality. When we do that, we see a tremendous difference between him and ourselves, and we recognize not only his power, but an incredible importance to live the time that we have well, don't we? There's so many different movies that, that talk about this, and really it's a cli- become sort of a cliche sort of thing, but living for today, not living for tomorrow, living in the moment. We see those things clearest when we look at God and his eternality. And that's what Moses does. That's where he begins. And so that's what we need to do. We need to, in the midst of our difficult times, start to ponder on God. And when we do that, we start to get perspective. And we say, you know what? Just a, just a breath and I'm gone. And everything I know is gone. God is everlasting. And this is important for Moses because he recognizes that he is the everlasting refuge, that there is, there is no place, there's no person that you could go to other than God that will last you throughout time. Moses has found that out, and in the midst of his difficulty, that's the first thing he does. He says, I need to call my mind to think about God and who he is. But he doesn't stay there, he moves on, and that's the next section, that he ponders God's eternality, but more than that, he owns God's anger. That's point two, that he owns God's anger. What do I mean by that? Well, we really have to understand Moses' context to help, help understand what's going on. You see, in verses 7 through 11, Moses brings up God's anger, his wrath. He says, for we are brought to an end by your anger. By your wrath, we are dismayed. You have set our iniquities before you, our secret sins in the light of your presence. Moses is saying, that God, you know everything that's wrong with me. Everything that's wrong, not just with me, but with us. And knowing that's what's wrong with me brings consequences. I've done wrong, and I deserve to be judged. And so Moses shows us here that not only just pondering God's eternality, but also owning God's anger against him is something that's extremely important if we're to make it through difficult times and to find God as a refuge. You see, when Moses led the people of Israel up out of Egypt, what happened is they're, they're escaping, they cut through the Red Sea, and then they get to this, 
this place called Kadesh Barnea. And as they're there, God tells Moses, send out some scouts into the land. I'm going to give you this promised land flowing with milk and honey, this best land in all the earth. And they send out the spies. Spies come back and they say, if, uh, if you're a kid and you know the nursery rhyme or the, the tune, 10 were bad and two were good, right? That's how it goes. Uh, I grew up, apparently nobody knows that these days, but that's the song. So 10 were bad and two were good. And that's what happens. And when they return, God says, you broke faith with me. Kadesh Barnea, that's the, that is the moment in time when all of Israel looks back to say, that's when we messed up. That is when we really missed the mark. And God's response in that, in, their, in the lack of faith, and saying that we can't go in, God's not powerful enough to let us in the land and help us, that is the, the moment in time where they broke faith with God. Of course, it happened again and again and again, but that is the pivotal moment in the Old Testament where that happened. And Moses here certainly is thinking about that. And the consequence for that sin, that disbelief in God, is something serious. The consequence was that every man, 40 years old and older, who was a fighting man, who would have gone into the land to fight, was condemned to wander in the desert for 40 years until they were all dead. And the new generation could come up that was faithful and would believe God and go into the land. And Moses is a part of that generation. He also broke faith with God and as a consequence, didn't get to go in the land. And we start to see this a little bit, that in verse 9, for all of our days pass away under your wrath. We bring our years to an end like a sigh. That the years of life that they have are 70, maybe even 80 years. 40 plus 40 is 80. Moses is talking about his own life and his generation's life, that they're wandering around in the desert Condemned to die in the hot sun. Why? Because they broke faith with God. And you'd have to say, well, what's the big deal? I mean, they just didn't believe God. Well, that is the big deal. That's the big deal in Genesis 3 that happens. That God says, I will love you, care for you, protect you. I'm all you need. And at the same time, Adam and Eve step up and say, no, we think we need something else. It's a travesty. And Moses understands it as a travesty and as, as something that is horribly wicked. It's sick. But Moses, he doesn't respond like we often do, does he? You see, I find Moses' response far different from ours, especially these days. Moses, he's not shaking his fist at God, is he? He's not angry at God. He says, God, you're angry with me and that's right. Or on the flip side, he doesn't turn into just a, a ball of self-loathing on the floor. You know, he's not angry at God and he doesn't just say, oh, my life is over. I have nothing to hope for. He doesn't go that direction either. What he does is he steps forward and he says, God, you're right to judge me. Your anger is right and it is powerful. And that's really what we need to do in light of our relationship with God. It's not only pondering God's eternality, because you see him as powerful, but then you also have to own God's anger that when Moses steps forward, he says, you know what? There's really nothing that I deserve except your condemnation. That's it. 
And so then he asks a question that in verse 11, who considers the power of your anger or the wrath according to the fear of you? It's a great question. I was thinking about it this past week. And here's how I think today would probably go for most of us. That after this service, after this sermon, you're going to go and talk with friends, probably right after, maybe with family. Then you're going to have lunch. Then you may take a Sunday nap, which are sacred. And then uh, maybe have dinner. After that, get all the kids up and then put the kids to bed. And you might plan a little bit for your week ahead. And then maybe after that's done, you might watch some Netflix. And then you're going to get up and you're going to go to work. You're going to take care of the kids. And life goes on until next Sunday. And then you're going to do it all again. Does that leave much room for what Moses is saying? Does that leave any room for pondering God's wrath? That's an important thing to do. Not just ponder God's eternality, but ponder his wrath. And if we don't do that, we really don't understand the fear of the Lord. We don't understand why God is angry. And that's part of the problem. You see, we, we actually do expect this to happen in our own relationships. When somebody wrongs you seriously, not just like cuts you off in traffic, but when somebody seriously hurts you, what do you want? You want them to confess it. You want them to tell you that it was wrong what they did. And if they don't, there's a problem in between you and them. It's the same with God. The God, Moses realized, wants us to acknowledge, yes, I've done wrong. While at the same time, not staying there. So we must own God's anger if we're going to live according to reality. And truly confess our sin against him and against other people. Otherwise, the option is really to go throughout life in a shallow sort of way. Where you're never really living in reality. But there's something strange here, isn't it? That if this psalm is about God as a refuge, then, then how, is, how is this a refuge? As you walk into the middle part of this psalm, you see that God is full of anger. He's full of wrath rightly against sin and sinners. And Moses walks headlong into this nuclear bomb, doesn't he? And yet he says that God is our dwelling place. He's our refuge. How is that the case? Well, he keeps going. And that's our third point, that not only pondering God's eternality and owning God's anger, but also hoping in God's work. That we are, Moses shows us, to hope in God's work. And for Moses, it was God's future work. And we see, starting in verse 12, that he says, So teach us to number our days that we may gain a heart of wisdom. That we may gain a heart of wisdom. Moses realizes, in light of his temporary life, that he really needs wisdom to know what to do on a day-in, day-out basis. What really lasts? What really is worthwhile? And then he says, Return, O Lord. How long? Have pity. You see, Moses has made a huge transition here. First, he's just thinking about God. And then he says, you know what? I personally own it. I deserve whatever you want to give me. And now he says, he doesn't stay there, but he says, God, help. He turns to God for help. And he says, return, O Lord. 
There's an interesting parallelism going on here. It's the second time the word return is used, same word. And he first uses it as what? God authoritatively says to man, due to the consequences of your sin, everyone will die. Return to dust. But now Moses says return, and it's not an authoritative command. It is a request. He says, return, O Lord. That, that the intensity involved with the command of God telling us to return to the dust is the same intensity that Moses picks up to say, God, please don't return us to dust. How long will this situation go on? And then he says, satisfy us in the morning with your steadfast love. Another interesting change here is that Moses changes from saying Lord as a title to Lord, all caps, personal God. You see, in Exodus, when God is with Moses on the mountain, Moses says, God, show me your glory. Show me who you really are. And it's one of the most remarkable things in the Bible that Moses is known as a man who talked with God face to face, that he was a man who was a friend of God. How would you like to have that title? And as he did, he revealed himself to Moses, and here's what he says in Exodus 34. He says that the Lord, the Lord, a God merciful and gracious, slow to anger and abounding in steadfast love and faithfulness, keeping steadfast love for thousands, forgiving iniquity and transgression and sin, but who will by no means clear the guilty, visiting the iniquity of the fathers on their children and the children's children. You see, Moses knows that, yes, he is owed punishment and condemnation in all of Israel, but at the same time, he walks in and says, but I know there's compassion. I know it. It's a part of who you are. And so he changes from saying, Lord, just a generic title, to actually saying, Lord, all caps, personal name, Yahweh. So he clings to him. He pleads with him in a personal way. And then he talks about God's work. He says, let your work be shown to your servants. Now, I don't know about you, but as I was reading this, it really confused me because I understand it. I understand what Moses is doing. He's depressed. He's lamenting the fact of his own sin and then his nation's sin before God. And he comes in and he says, let's think about God. Let's think about his, his, his everlasting nature. And let's think about our own position before him that we're sinners and we're worthy of his judgment. And then he says, and let's think about God's work. And for me, as I was studying it, I mean, there's absolutely no power in it for me as I first started reading. Oh, why is he talking about work now? Well, well, it really requires a synopsis of the Old Testament in a way. But when Moses talks about work, God's work, what he's really saying is God's saving work, his personal saving work that he accomplishes for his people. And that's the way that God is even known in the Old Testament. What does he do in Egypt? That God creates these works, these 10 plagues, that show people who, what he's like. Or when he crosses the Red Sea, Moses sees that this is God's work. It's, it is the, the, the icon of God's salvation in the Old Testament. When people see God splitting the Red Sea, it is the work of salvation in most people's minds as you read the Old Testament. 
And so that's what Moses undoubtedly has in mind as he, as he writes to say that let your work be shown to your servants. He says, God, I want to see your saving work again. I need to see it. And then he says, let the favor of the Lord be upon us. You'll probably have a note that favor can also be translated as beauty. And here's the point of that. That as Moses reflects on God's saving work, as he knew it, which is the Exodus, what he saw was God's favor for him and for the nation. And that was something that was beautiful. That's the, that's the progression that happens. That as Moses thinks on God and his saving work for him, he looks at it and says, this is your favor to us. And to me, that's the most beautiful thing in the world. It's the most beautiful thing of the world. And Moses, we see here at the end of Psalm 90, gets to a place where after thinking about God and his standing before God and God's works, he gets to a place where he says that the most beautiful thing in his heart is really knowing and loving God. That's what he's talking about. And that's significant because Moses is condemned to die in the desert. And so, in a sense, Moses comes forward and he says, the, the best thing in my life is God. Even if I don't get the land flowing with milk and honey. Even if I don't get the benefits of God, I'm happy with the person of God, God himself. He got to a place where it wasn't a piece of land, it wasn't ease, it wasn't a slower life, but it was finding God as his ultimate refuge and dwelling. That's really what Moses discovered. So where does this leave us? See, Moses had to look forward to God's future redemption by looking back at his own experience of God's redemption in Egypt. But for us, it's different. For us, we just look back. And we don't look back at the Exodus. We look back at God's ultimate saving work in the cross. That on the cross, what happened to Jesus? Jesus was turned to dust, wasn't he? You see, as Jesus is on the cross, he, he mentions, he, he talks about the first part of Psalm 22. But he really had Psalm 22 on the whole in mind. And it says this. Psalm twenty two fourteen that I am poured out like water, and all my bones are out of joint. My heart is like wax. It is melted within my breast. My strength is dried up like a potsherd. My tongue sticks to the jaws of my mouth. You lay me in the dust of death. What is Jesus saying? He's saying that what you said to Moses is happening to me. That you say to all mankind, return, O children of man, to dust. And Jesus is here taking on Moses' sin, his people's sin. And the result is that he's turned to dust. His mouth is so dry he can barely even talk. You see, God can be a refuge for Moses because Jesus was left out in the storm. And it's the same for us, that whether it's Moses or us, God is a refuge for us because Jesus didn't have a refuge on the cross. That's really what's going on. 
And so we need to consider, has God become beautiful to you because of the cross? Is, is God a refuge to you because of what Jesus has done? If he's not, then you're walking headlong into that nuclear blast without any protection. God is the everlasting refuge that we all need. Like Moses, we have to ponder. We have to ponder God's eternal nature. We have to own God's anger against us. And most importantly, we have to hope. We have to hope in God's work of salvation. For Moses, it was the splitting of the Red Sea. For us, we look back and we see clearly that was, that was just a shadow of what was to come when God makes a way for his people and saves them from their death. So if you haven't seen that, if you haven't understood that or loved it, listen to Moses. Even without the milk and the honey, even without the promised land, do you recognize that God himself is the prize. God himself is the promised land. God himself is the refuge. And any kind of difficulty in life, this is where we can go into the ultimate refuge from the storm. Let's pray. God, we thank you for the life of Moses. Thank you for his wrestling. Thank you for his honesty and the way that you moved in his life. God, would we learn from him today? Would we take it in and think about who you are and your nature and your character and think about our own nature and our own character and turn to see you, turn to behold you, turn to see you as beautiful? God, we ask that you would do that in our heart, just like Moses was asking. And as we do, Father, we, we look forward to seeing you and beholding you as a refuge for us in all the difficulties of life. And we thank you for all these things in your son's name. Amen.